This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Susan Sanazi about her long career as a magazine editor, about sustainability and design, and about what it takes to succeed as a designer. I think you have to have a predisposition for inquiry and for curiosity. And I hate to say this, but I give up on the rest of them. I can't. I can't be mother to everybody. Here's Debbie Millman. At the heart of any successful magazine is the editor-in-chief. And at the best magazines, you'll find that the editor-in-chief has been there a very long time. Such is the case at Metropolis, the magazine of architecture, culture, and design. Susan Sanazi has been its chief editor since 1986. That's nearly 30 years at the helm of a magazine in an extremely volatile media environment. Susan also is the author of several books on design, and she teaches design history as well. She joins me today at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Susan, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks for having me here. Susan, is it true that the first job you got after graduating college was as a letter writer for a porn magazine? Well, yes. (laughs) Would you like me to detail that one? Please, indeed. (laughs) Well, it was actually a job that I accepted, but then I resigned on my way back to New Jersey, where I lived at the time, because I couldn't stand the idea of doing that kind of work. You know, since the job itself was based on a lie, because, I mean, aren't the readers supposed to be writing those letters? So I would be (laughs) writing those letters for these articles that I didn't want to read. But this was a very desperate time. There was a recession. I wanted publishing. I wanted to be in magazines. And I did accept it. But then I resigned it before I started. Even before the first day? Yes, So in 1956, your family escaped from what is now Austria to a displaced persons camp. Where did you go? Well, we actually escaped from Hungary. Hungary was still dominated by the Soviet Empire. In 1956, the Hungarian Revolution was put down after five days. And when the tanks rolled in, my parents decided that they needed to leave. And we skipped over the border to Austria, where they welcomed us. And I read that you started drawing and writing from a very young age. And one of your first memories is of receiving your first colored pencils. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, those were my very own pencils. I was always drawing when I was in grade school and painting, painting watercolors. And I always was able to catch that sheen on the copper bowl. I don't know how, but it happened. So you're just a natural? I just, I don't know. It just was working for me. And then in a displaced persons camp in Austria, someone gave my dad a notebook with a set of colored pencils. So I got the little notebook and I proceeded to document everything that I saw. I understand that you first drew an orange and a banana. Yes, the first ones I ever had. My meal. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so were they, were they abstract? Were they realistic? What was no, your approach no. to drawing? I wasn't abstract at all. I like to look at nature, look at the world around me, and just uh, sort of give it the fidelity that it had to my 10-year-old eyes. And I never progressed enough in drawing that I could become abstract. I think you have to really progress into a different state of mind. But first, you have to start realistically. When did you come to the United States? 
We actually were very fortunate. We ended up in a series of displaced persons camp in Austria and in Germany. And then the U.S. government took us over because we were political refugees. The United States Army basically set up camps all over the uh, Western Europe and uh, shuffled us from one camp to the other. Then they put us on a military plane about a month of after the shuffling between uh, camps. And we ended up in Camp Kilmer, New Jersey. And you were about 10 years old at this time? About that, yeah. So what was it like for you to come to the United States, a completely different culture, and then go to grade school here? You know, at that age, you don't care too much. I mean, you know what you care about. You care about your mom, your dad, your sister. So I wasn't as disturbed by it as my sister. My sister is two years older. So she was a little bit more mature and thoughtful. And I just like the idea of sort of moving around. Although there was so much propaganda against the United States and especially the United States soldiers in Hungary, because the United States was considered an aggressor. And so when I first saw my American soldier with the peaked cap, I panicked. Mm. I thought that, oh, my God, this guy is going to kill me. But of course, he was the nicest man. So, you know, I got over that very quickly. My first uh, scrambled eggs that they served me was delicious. So (laughs) it worked. So you have a master's degree in modern European history from Rutgers University. So you stayed in New Jersey for your education. You also have an undergraduate degree in sociology. What made you decide to study those subjects and not design or art? Well, I was interested in reading, all kinds of reading, and I was very much interested in history. I loved historic novels. As a young kid, I read a lot of Hungarian literature, although not in Hungary, actually. We immigrated to New Brunswick, New Jersey. We settled there, and I found uh, in New Brunswick Library, in the public library, a collection of amazing Hungarian books that I had never was mature enough to read. So I had one summer of going up to the rafters and reading Hungarian books uh, almost every day. In Hungarian. In Hungarian. And most of those novels, most of those stories had some sort of historic context. So I understood that history was really interesting, that it was important, that you're from somewhere, that you are part of something, that you have a grounding in in this world. So history was always very interesting to me. And sociology, because I like the study of people. So those were very simple choices for me. Was it more of an accident then that you ended up in the design field? Totally an accident. Totally an accident. I was very much interested in the combination of text and picture that magazines are. That's why I looked for a job in publishing. And then, as after you the know, porn after the porn magazine <laughs> and things settled down, then then I got hired by this magazine called Vend. It was a magazine of food service and vending management. Now you would Good think name, though. it Vend. was Vend. I like that. It was and it was all about vending machines. There was a magazine all about vending machines. All about vending machines. And you know, I couldn't care less about the subject, but the managing editor taught me everything I know about magazines. He sort of appointed me his little assistant, and he showed me how the magazine was put together, how it was edited, how it was assigned, how it was laid out, how the last caption was written and the last page number was put in place. This was kind of a craft, really, for me. So at that point, did you decide that you wanted to do both, write as well as design, or were you 
still thinking about really pursuing work as a journalist? You know, I'm not trained as a journalist, and so I never claimed to be a journalist. I have such respect for writers that I don't think of myself as a writer, but I really like the process of thinking through your writing. And so that's how that happened, that I was not interested in design to begin with. I was interested in magazines. I was interested in storytelling. I was interested in seeing the stories in pictures and in text. When I got my first job on Modern Photography magazine, that was visual and text, and then they... That was after the vending machine. After the vending machine thing, and after my master's. So I went from then to grad school. Design came when Interiors magazine was bought by Billboard, and they were looking for an editorial assistant. I applied, and I met the editor, Olga Geft. She turned out to be one of the most amazing mentors to me. She was a photographer. She was a wonderful writer. She could tell stories. And I thought, this is the person I want to be. I read that you've stated that Olga taught you everything you know from how to behave at a press conference to how to tell a design story and that her lifelong example of commitment to a subject and an idea caught you and never let you go. What was the most important thing that you learned from her? I think the most important thing was paying attention and learning and always learning and always thinking that there was more, more to know. The other thing which she didn't mean to teach me was how not to make a magazine. In what what way? (laughs) Talk about that a little bit. Well, she was very particular about her copy, and she couldn't let go. At that time, we had blue lines or blueprints for the magazine. Now everything is electronic. And when the blueprints are done, that means that the magazine is in film and ready to be printed. And so she would see the blue lines and rewrite handwritten notes on the blue lines. And the production department went crazy every time. I saw her perfection and I respected that. But I also saw how incredibly difficult she made it for everybody. And there I learned to get to a point where you just say, okay, I'm done. This is done. And the next one may be better. So you really learned all of your design, editorial, and business skills on the job. Yeah, yeah, all of it. And I think what was great for me actually on interiors was that they made me the assistant for the products editor. So I ended up choosing new products that I could report on for the magazine. So I was taking photographs and writing about it and making market reports. So that's how it began. And it's really interesting to me because having started it, starting my career as a small-scale product reporter, I wasn't worried that I didn't understand something. It was fairly clear that either this was a good design, a well-balanced piece of furniture, or it wasn't. If I started with architecture, that would have been very difficult for me because I learned that eventually. And then I went on to interior design and then to architecture and then to planning and then to urbanism. How do you feel that your education in history has impacted your career? Totally, 
Totally. I mean, I think without that, I would not be interested in the context that I'm interested in. I'm always asking, well, where did this come from? How can we relate it to something that has happened? You know, especially when you look at cities. I mean, cities are all about layers of history. When I started studying cities in in earnest at Metropolis, I began to understand how important that was and how important knowing what kind of culture existed when the brick city of Toronto was built, let's say, as opposed to the glass city. Each one was a representative of its era. It was a really interesting thing for me to think historically. You worked your way up at Interiors to senior editor and then were appointed chief editor of Residential Interiors, which was an offshoot of interiors. What was it like to suddenly be the person in charge? It was great because uh, they did not want to give me the job. Why not? Because I was too junior and I was female at the time. You didn't have a lot of female editors. And they were going to hire some star of um, design, some decorator who had a name. And we had one of those before, and I did the whole magazine anyway. Of course. And so I went to the publisher and I said, well, it's up to you. You can hire whoever you want, but I know how to produce this magazine, and I know everything about this subject. So I think you should give me the job. And he said, okay, you can have it. I found an article from the November 1977 issue of Residential Interiors, wherein you reported on a rug-making school in Afghanistan and reviving the almost forgotten craft of hand-weaving with natural fibers. So in thinking about the trajectory of your career and the kinds of things that you are passionate about now, it seems to me that you were interested in sustainability before it was even a word that people were talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think I never called it that. I think it was really interesting to me that these human abilities that are so distinct, so beautiful, so rewarding in craft need to be talked about and need to be understood. I come from a family where my mother made beautifully embroidered tapestries and things that were just lovely to look at. And I really respected that. I'm not a crafter, although I used to knit like crazy, but I always thought that that was really key to understanding a culture through their craft. So I always found these stories for residential interiors because I love telling those stories. And yeah, it wasn't called sustainable, but it certainly has helped us define sustainability. I found a marvelous interview with you in the Journal of Interior Design, wherein you talk about your first understanding of sustainability, and I'd like to read it. It's a paragraph, so I'm going to read it as you. You state, I came to understand sustainability long before I ever heard the word. Long before, in fact, I spoke a word of English. As a child growing up in Cold War Hungary, I learned to use our meager resources respectfully. When, for instance, there was a pumpkin on the menu, we did not throw the seeds away but gave them to the chickens. Or if we had the good fortune to own a large source of protein, such as a pig, the pumpkin seeds, the rind, and the skin got mixed into her dinner. Sometimes my mother would make the seeds and the rind into a delicious clear soup or dried the seeds to make a tasty snack. Every bit of our food supply sustained someone or something. Very little of it was thrown away, and when it was destined for the trash heap, the birds and small animals feasted on it. 
When the first oil crisis hit in 1972 and large gas-guzzling cars lined up for blocks around filling stations, we had an inkling that our resources, even in America, might be limited. Until then, it seemed that everything on earth was made for us, including the seemingly bottomless barrels of crude oil shipped in from the Middle East. It would take a long time, and even for this activist generation, to understand that saving the earth also means cleaning up our own mess, conserving our resources, designing more compact and biodegradable packaging, among other things that have since become the hallmarks of what we came to call sustainability. Really marvelous. In thinking about this, it seemed to me that this notion of using all of our resources and not wasting anything was just ingrained in the way that you were brought up, in the way that you lived. What made you think that this was something that should and could and would ultimately be a very public mission of yours, not only personally, but within Metropolis as well? I think when we started seeing the um, conversation about environmental impact of things, then I recognized where I came from in it. So I never thought of it before. It wasn't that I defined it. It was that it was being defined in society. And there was language around it, forming around what these ideas would be and what they would mean to our resources and how do we use what we have. And I think when, when that conversation arose, I immediately saw my role in it. It was uh, something that I embraced immediately when I understood that there was a movement brewing. But that movement was initially really um, looked down upon by architects in particular initially. How did you bridge that gap between the tension and the negativity that architects were communicating about this notion impacting the way that they were building buildings or making things and the need to be responsible about what we create as humans? I think what was interesting about that time was there was a lot of sort of superficial language around architecture, which I always hated. I mean, there was so much talk that I I didn't understand and nobody else did. It was like this very strange pontificating creatures in the front of the room talking about things that nobody understood, but everybody kind of snickered in the audience. And I, I was thinking... We're talking about this world that is being built and our resources, and and it just doesn't feel right to me. So I didn't fit into that, and I didn't want to report that way about architecture. And then through Metropolis, we found stories elsewhere. So we found really good stuff happening in Germany and Scandinavia. And we started reporting on that. Then, of course, we did that for years, and there was no traction. I mean, really, the American architects didn't care. And uh, not until Ed Masria came to us when he reconstructed the pie chart and uh, found that at least 40% of all the greenhouse gases were caused by the built environment. Of course, it's much more than that. And in cities like New York, it's almost like 90% really fully because this is a very intense built environment. So we started reporting on it. And when we wrote that story, Architects Pollute Story. That in we 2003. Put on, yeah, yeah, that we put on our cover, 
The architects were incredibly upset. There were some very nasty um, kind of remarks and, you know, people saying some very non-kind things. And I just knew that we were right. I mean, uh, it was one of those things that had to be done. And because people like Ed, who were really committed to this and really understood what it means to build sustainably, I met Bill McDonough when he was a kid. I mean, Bill McDonough was a mere child architect when I met him. And he was talking about true north and the angles of the sun in Manhattan my first year at Metropolis. I knew that the architects who were really interesting were doing something with it. So that gave me strength that there was somewhere to push, somewhere to think about this. And then luckily I had an editorial staff that really cared about this. And then we decided to read everything we could on sustainability. Bill McKibben and Daniel Quinn's Ishmael. And we read all of these books together because it was a hard concept to kind of put out there without real understanding. And then when we began to understand the kind of complexity of the sustainability issue, then we were more confident on reporting on it in the American context. And it had to be the American context because the German reporting that we did and all of that great stuff that we put in the magazine had no traction because it didn't relate to our culture and our policies and our economic system. In a way, it was good because we established a relationship with sustainability. And when Ed uh, Masria discovered what he found on the chart, he came to us because of what we did. So I think it did have traction on those two people who read those things. But that sort of opened the door for us. So I think maybe it was a good thing that we did it after all. In 1986, you were appointed editor-in-chief at Metropolis. You arrived five years after it launched, and during your now 28 years as editor-in-chief, the magazine has gained international recognition and won numerous awards, including two nominations for the National Magazine Award for General Excellence. What was your goal when you first started? Did you have a mission that included opening the eyes of the world to sustainability? Did you have goals that you were intending to bring forth to the world? Well, you know, Metropolis was a great idea from the beginning. Its first editor-in-chief, Sharon Lee Ryder, and I were friends at the time. And we both lived on the Upper West Side. And while they were thinking about forming the magazine, she and I had a lot of brunches about what this magazine would be. And it had this kind of intention humanism at its heart. It really wanted to understand design as an essential activity that really could better human life. You know, sometimes with the new editors, they come in and they try to remake everything. And all I kept thinking is, how do I make this really progressive and move into the direction that they intended to move it. So it was very natural for me to see that this fitted beautifully into the humanist agenda. My only mission was to refine the magazine and make it really readable. The plan was to evolve it, and which is which I love that idea is that because the magazine is so embracing of a large ideas of human context that you can basically include anything. So you can include accessibility, sustainability, technology, education, all of those things that we ended up including because it's really part of who we are as the creatures that we are. So, uh, you know, I just fit it in. 
with all of the magazines that have come and gone, shelter magazines, lifestyle magazines, technology, business magazines, what do you attribute to the success and longevity of Metropolis? I think I really would like to say that it was the editorial and art staffs who embraced the subject matter and who made it the editorial product that people kept being interested in. This is not a one-woman show. This is a big kind of collaboration system. And I was always lucky to have people in the editorial and art department that bought into this idea that design embraces the larger ideas of being human on earth. And so that's how it happens. Oh, easy peasy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Susan, one of the first stories that ran in the magazine was about how Patricia Moore, then a young industrial designer, dressed up as an 85-year-old woman in a complex outfit she made of balsa wood and bandages that wrapped around her joints, gels under her contact lenses, weights that distorted her youthful spine, and heavy wrappings everywhere to slow down her movement. What were you trying to expose Patty Moore actually is one of the founders of the universal design movement. And I didn't know at that time. And that story had already been assigned by the time I got there. So Lee Ryder was the one who assigned that. And I was so happy to see that story because I thought, what a great story this is for us to be running. Because if design isn't about helping people as they age, as they need to move, as they need to live their lives, then what is it about? So when that story came in, I was so thrilled to run it. And then a few years later, the Americans with Disabilities uh, law was passed and it became uh, the language of the country universal. Universal design was very much part of the discussion. That was just another humanist story that had a design at its core. And she was smart enough to dress up as this 85-year-old woman at the age of 27 and walk the streets of New York in this diminished capacity and really understood who to design for. And that, to me, has always been my ideal designer. And I think that that really is the, those are the seeds of human-centered design as we know it now. Yeah. Um, I read that you said we all experience design and architecture, but we all don't think about it. And that the societal conversation about design is superficial. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, I do, actually. I mean, the fact that only four or five papers in the U.S. have architecture critics, there's no talk about architecture and design on television. I really feel that it's not a subject that the media embraces outside of the specialists like Metropolis. In Denmark, for instance, everybody knows who Finn Yule was. I mean, the only designer anybody knows in the U.S. is Frank Lloyd Wright. You know, he's been long dead. I mean, you know, there's some pretty cool people working now who's, who are very exciting to talk about. And yet uh, there's no discourse about any of that. Do you think that that is a result of the audience in America or the critics? I think it's both. The critics do a very good job in the newspapers. But you really have to have a all-media 
coverage of something for it to be understood, especially now. We work at all media platforms. So it used to be just a magazine, and now we have websites and social media and conferences and seminars and all of those areas, books, everything. We have to have a lot of output to be heard at all. And all of those areas have to be involved, and it's not enough just for one voice or 10 voices or 200 voices or even 2,000 voices because the country is too big. Do you think that the people that aren't writing magazines and newspapers but reading magazines and newspapers really care about sustainability for the long haul, or do you think that they care about what they think they're supposed to care about as long as it doesn't impact them? I think they care about sustainability when it comes to health issues. And I think increasingly human health and sustainability are tied together. So that is a very good development right now, that we talk about clean air, we talk about clean food, we talk about exercise, we talk about designing cities for walking, we talk about, you know, taking you away from the sedentary life and and really, really uh, making you active and uh, making you vital human beings for as long as you can be, as old as you are. So I, I just think that there's, I don't know. I was reading an article recently wherein the writer was lamenting the fact that more people don't buy recycled paper that is made into toilet paper because it's not soft enough. And I thought, wow. (laughs) Wow. If there was ever something we could use recycled paper for, why, why wouldn't we be able to forego that sort of slight discomfort if there really is a discomfort at all to better the world. And I don't know why that wouldn't happen. And let's face it, I think it could be made soft if that's what the market wants. So I think uh, the idea of recyclability is one small part of all of this. And if we kind of always stress recycle blindly, I mean, we can be spending a lot of energy on recycling something that shouldn't be recycled, that somehow we need to kind of figure out what is it that gets recycled? How much does it cost to recycle it? What do we do about materials in the first place that don't need to be recycled but reused somehow? In what way? Like, Can and, you give me examples? of? Well, I mean, I think why don't we have chairs, for instance, made of materials that could be de- decoupled and, uh, you know, reconstructed into something else? Or why don't we think about the end of life of things instead of just designing for something that is for the garbage heap? This is a resource to begin with. If it's melt, how to melt it down safely and with as little energy as possible, or if not melt it down, how to decouple it and how to reuse it to build something with, or make it so spectacular that it will never be taken apart and it's so well-performing that generations will use it. So, I mean, we want some bigger ideas that kind of include the whole system of something. How does it made? Where is it made? How do you take it apart? How do you reuse it? That needs to be designed. All of that is a design problem. It's not just simply make it a beautiful form and then somebody else markets it. But the designer really has to think about all of these areas. And unfortunately, we don't have that part of our design culture yet. Why not? 
Because it's been, you know, I mean, industrial designers are servants of the manufacturers that hire them. I think uh, they're beginning to understand how important they are or could be. And I'm hoping that the new generation of designers who are coming out of school and who are beginning to understand this really well will change the equation because this idea of serving industry and serving the production method that is put in front of you and this is what we can make with this and then that's how you end up with all these terrible products made with toxic materials that are not being evaluated. And I think there are a growing number of young designers who are not happy with with that. You know, they're not going into the employ of big manufacturers. They, they're starting little companies. They're trying to figure out how to make things on their own. They're trying to figure out how to use materials that can be reused or make things that are so incredibly attractive that they're not going to go away. So, I mean, I think there must be much more of a thoughtful design for everything. And I also think that in design schools especially, everything needs to be thought about as part of the designed environment, everything. Every course in a design school needs to somehow fit itself into, well, what does it do to the designed environment as the designed environment relates to the natural environment? Without that question, we're not going to progress here. We're just going to do these little fixes and do the recycled bathroom tissue and be happy if somebody uses it or somebody buys it. And it's heading us to hell. I mean, it's really melting the ice caps. So I think we have to be deeper thinkers and design schools could be the center of this all. I think we're really looking at, though, a need to reconfigure the capitalist system because Think about all of the companies and and brands that have planned obsolescence as part of the manufacturing cycle. I mean, the whole notion of fashion as an industry is based on planned obsolescence where after a couple of months, something isn't stylish anymore or something isn't in vogue, literally and figuratively. How do we change that mentality? It seems like a complete reconfiguration of everything we know about business and everything we've ever done in regard to commerce. Well, there are several ways. One of them is to make sure that we design things that have end-of-life designed into them. Let's just say carpet tiles. They're designed for 30 years or 40 years, and then they ugly out and they go into the landfill and they pollute the earth and basically they don't biodegrade. So we have a flawed product. Well, let's say we decide as we look at the consumption, especially in hotels and hospitality and offices where carpet tiles are changed out once every five years. How about calibrating that fiber? Give it as much or as little as you would need for five years and design it for that five years because you know it's going to end its life. What do you do with it when the life is over? And not just throw it away, but what happens to it? So I don't think it ne that necessarily reconfigures the capitalist system, although the capitalist system needs to be reconfigured in a very smart way, both in the way the markets operate and both in the way we make things and we consume things. But I really do feel that just like we should be designing for every stage of human life, we should be designing for every stage of material life. That's what I'm hoping for will happen.
I read that you said that you see spectacular design in places such as the small hill towns in Tuscany and the organic quality of those places and how they manage breezes, ventilation and shading and water flow is so smart, yet we have not learned from them. I'm wondering why we haven't learned from them. You talk a lot about the notion of a place where the art, food, and architecture is all beautiful. How does that happen? Well, it happens because there's a commitment to beauty, because there's a commitment to craft and skill, because there is a commitment to place. When you spend time in Italy, and not in the modern portions, because that looks like everything else, and it, it's just as spiritually impoverished as anywhere else. But when you, There are McMansions there yeah, now, McMansions too. McMansions <laughs> there, and terrible, terrible buildings, and polluted places. So it really is that modernism has reached them as much as they have reached anything else. But there is the remnant of a culture there that is all about making things beautiful and understanding where you are and understanding what your resources are. I mean, those hill towns are built because, obviously, for fortification, it had to be uh, done that way. It was defensive purposes. But then at the same time, they knew where the sun came from. They knew where the breezes came from. It's not trial and error. It's generations of understanding of how to build and how to make things that are handed down. This sort of modern amnesiac world that we created, so let's forget everything and let's invent everything. Well, that's done some very harmful things to us and to our environment and to ourselves. So you can't deny what you learned. You learn from it and improve on it and make it even more original and really helpful in your thinking. That's what's really interesting about places like Italy, especially those hill towns, because they keep their wine culture, their cheese culture, their animal husbandry, their their organic farming, their, you know, they really feel that this is important to them. Now, I don't know how long that's going to last. You know, they have co-op stores all over the uh, country selling uh, dry spaghetti to Italians. I mean, this is a joke. They know how to make spaghetti themselves. This sort of convenience, the modern convenience, is ruining a lot of our kind of human qualities in the environments that we produce ourselves. You recently gave a commencement address at Pacific Northwest College of Art and stated the following. As artists and communication designers, you can choose to be the outriders of society. But I worry about you. I worry that while you have evolved the use of your thumbs to work at phenomenal speeds, you are not as interested in developing the habits you need to accumulate knowledge, knowledge that can inform your vision as artists. I mean knowledge of the world, science, literature, and history, knowledge of the great contributions others are making or have made to our rich understanding of humanity and the earth which gives us life. What advice, Susan, would you give to those that are first entering the workplace? How can they learn this knowledge of the world? Well, I think it's it's learning to be mindful and learning to know that you don't know anything And that when you find information that you find joy in, then you want to repeat that. But I'm not sure you can teach that. I think you have to have a predisposition for inquiry 
and for curiosity. And I think a lot of people do. And I think those are the people that I'd like to encourage. And I hate to say this, but I give up on the rest of them. I can't. I can't be mother to everybody. <laughs> so, so I really feel very strongly that the people who are leaders, who are thinkers, who think about how to make a difference and how to create systems that are going to be much more meaningful and much more productive and much more kind to nature and to humanity, those leaders need to have that inner drive within them, that there's something to contribute. And to contribute, you have to know something. Now, the time that I said that, I was a little bit annoyed by all of this tweeting and carrying on and not really thinking about what it was bringing to the new generation of uh, of designers. And I'm beginning to understand that there is a different way of learning. Mine was, is very linear. If I don't understand point A, I will not get to point B. But that's not the way the children learn now. They learn a great deal through all kinds of instruments and all kinds of connections and all kinds of abilities to find information. It's almost like multitask learning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's almost sort of a little bit autistic. But in, in a way, it's a really smart way of being. And uh, I think that I'm a little bit more forgiving than I was at the PNCA speech because I was, they were all tweeting at the time. But who knows? They could have been tweeting all the brilliant things I was saying. <laughs> I, I doubt it. I'm a little bit more sanguine about all of that now. I understand that you were jolted into another phase of the work that you're doing after 9-11, uh, shortly after the tragedy, you met with architect Beverly Willis and formed a civic group called RDOT, which stands for Rebuild Downtown Our Town. You did this for the purpose of providing solid research and information for those working to rebuild New York City. And after 9-11, you moved to the East Village of New York City in a small loft designed by Harry Allen in order to reduce your own personal ecological footprint. What other work are you doing now in this regard? So, well, our dot has ceased to function. We tried to finance it as long as we could. We tried to raise money to create these studies and because we had to, I mean, everybody was doing volunteer work. So that was in the first flush of all of that, that tragedy. We were really, you know, psyched and we really wanted to contribute. And then as the years went by, people dropped off and uh, we just didn't have the energy to keep it up. And then we began to see what was happening in the planning circles. And we provided all these studies, which were really solid, smart research pieces on everything from street life to helping remake neighborhoods to sustainability to all of those things. And some of it might have been adapted, but not really. I mean, look at what's downtown. It's a colossal sort of huge buildings with huge wind tunnels on the street, and there's no scale. There's no anything down there. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's like a nightmare. I was there a couple of weekends ago, and I, I, I couldn't wait to get out of there. I mean, it was like uh, being in Shanghai or one of those cities that is, has no distinction at all. It's not New York. It's nothing. The soul has really changed. It has. Yeah. My last question is something that I read about your idea of a perfect home. You said that your perfect home is a retreat, 
a quiet place where, as Eliza Doolittle says, is far away from the cold night air with one enormous chair and a great lamp. <laughs> is that still true? It's still what true. What kind of lamp? What kind of it's lamp? It's still true. <laughs> and I have what uh, the lamp is a, a variously depending on what the lamp is, but I have a, a TCO. And I have a little other smaller lamps here and there. And I have a womb chair, a Saarinen womb chair, which is an enormous chair, which is full of pillows. And I could just position myself in any way. And I can spend a weekend there. I mean, I think, uh, you know, usually because I travel so much, I really am just such a homebody when I'm at home. And that chair and that lamp is very important to me. So uh I find it uh, very comforting, and it's quiet there. It's not, there are no noises, so I am away from the world. I have one of those New York rare window situations, like the film, where I see everybody's life in front of me, but I don't see any light. But it's a, a really private place, and you, you feel like you, you can grasp your thoughts there, and I think that's really important. Susan, thank you so much for being on Design Matters, and thank you for your endless commitment to not only making the world a better place, but inspiring others to do it, too. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You can check out Susan Sanazi's handiwork as editor-in-chief on the website, metropolismag.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.